On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. Maria Popova has called brain pickings, her invention and labor of love, a human-powered discovery engine for interestingness. What she really delivers to hundreds of thousands of people each day is wisdom of the old-fashioned sort presented in new-fashioned digital ways. She doesn't merely curate, she cross-pollinates between philosophy and design, physics and poetry, the scholarly and the experiential. And now she's written a magnificent first book, Figuring. We revisit my 2015 conversation with her on what it means to lead a good life, intellectually, creatively, and spiritually. You know, we never see the world exactly as it is. We, we see it as we hope it will be or we fear it might be. And we spend our lives going through a sort of modified stages of grief about that realization. And we deny it and then we argue with it and we despair over it. But eventually, and, and this is my belief, we come to see it not as despairing, but as vitalizing. We never see the world exactly as it is because we are how the world is. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. From a weekly email to seven friends in 2006, Brain Pickings became a website, a Twitter feed, a weekly digest, and much more, and has been included in the Library of Congress permanent web archive since 2012. Maria Popova was born in communist Bulgaria, and she came to the United States to study at the University of Pennsylvania. She started Brain Pickings as an internal office experiment while she was working one of multiple jobs to pay for her studies. Okay, so I want to say that when I when I really understood that you grew up in Bulgaria, I understood <sighs> you in a new way, what you do. You know, I feel like you have this passionate intellect and really this faith in the power of ideas that is somewhat un-American. To me, that really comes through. Um, but also, you lived through the world changing. You were born in, mm, in communist yes. Bulgaria, which then shifted. You know, that was a, a very kind of aggressively atheist world. So was there a spiritual background to your childhood in a way that you would have defined it as spiritual? Mm. What's interesting is actually that, yes, communism sort of took it upon itself to eradicate any trace of religion. And, and Bulgaria does have a national faith, I guess, which is Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Right. But, you know, half a century of communism did deliberately uh, steer things toward what you called a hard atheism, except it worked with varying degrees of efficiency, meaning yeah. the closer people were, both geographically and in terms of affiliation to the party and to its governing bodies, the more unreligious they were. But people in the rural countryside, away from the sort of watchful eye of the government, mm -hmm. uh, maintained a pretty strong religious tradition. So my family was very interesting because my father's side came from a lineage of intellectuals, yeah. and they lived in the city. And my grandfather was a military general, meaning uh, very much aligned with the government. 
But my mother's family came from a lineage of, I guess, peasants. Um, my maternal grandparents were both elementary school teachers and lived in the countryside. And I was raised primarily by my grandparents. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had these two grandmothers. One was the hard atheist intellectual, and the other who still to this day says prayers for me every night, you know? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but by and large, my father's side prevailed. So I grew up with an attitude toward religion that can best be described as a cautious curiosity as a child. Mm-hmm. And then befitting the teenager's typical distaste for nuance that evolved into contemptuous curiosity. Mm-hmm. But what I also think was true of that time and those cultures is that, you know, intellectual life and literature and poetry, reading and writing were not taken for granted and that there mm. there was a sense in which intellectual life was a form of spiritual survival. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I was recently um, visiting my family and, and my grandmother, my father's mother, mm-hmm. who's the atheist intellectual, uh, showed me for the very first time all of these books that her father, my great-grandfather, who died six days before I was born, whom I never met, he was an astronomer and mathematician, and he taught himself English and German by hacking the radio to tune into the um, uh, BBC and Deutsche Welle. Yeah. And then he taught my dad and my uncle both German and English. But he had these books, which he showed me, that he had smuggled from England somehow. And there were first edition Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he had, his marginalia were extraordinary. And I and I felt this strange kinship with him through the years, through mm. the cultures and the eras and these different media. Because what I do when I read is essentially what he did, which is he wrote in the margins all these notes on things that he didn't understand and wanted to understand. He underlined passages that he noted were beautiful language and and words that he didn't know that he would look up in the dictionary. He would circle them and then write the translation. But it was this sort of intellectual dance with another mind that that you could see in the margins of his books. And I was just very, very Mm. moved by it. In a sense, what you do in a different medium is marginalia. I mean, you you can actually hyperlink something and actually look up that word that you don't know. You know, someplace you said literature is the original internet. And I wonder if yeah. that image of your grandfather is precisely what you're describing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, seeing these books of his added a different uh, layer of understanding to this thing, which I've been saying for a while. And originally, I meant it in the sense of you look at a book and, and then in it, every footnote and, and allusion and, and reference is essentially a hyperlink yeah. to another work, except it only works backwards. It only goes back in time, you know. And marginalia or this sort of, it goes back and forth because mm. it is the present mind conversing with a past mind. So it's a different kind of hypertext, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. You are often referred to as one of the many descriptors of what you do as a blogger, but you don't really reside online in the way I think that word might suggest. I mean, you do many things. You do many kinds of writing, but it seems to me that one of the things you do is you use technology, use the internet to circulate thinking about old-fashioned reading and writing. 
I guess so. And it, it was not always the case. I mm. mean, my site is really uh, a record of of my becoming who I am. And I started so early in my 20s. Yeah. You know, I didn't know who I was. I wasn't doing that much reading then. And it eventually became that. And right now, I rarely read the internet at all. And I spend most of my days sort of buried in book piles and letters and diaries and old philosophy books and whatnot. But, you know, there's this term that we hear in kind of new agey circles, uh, spiritual reparenting, which is uh, a bit too new agey even for my taste. And I'm, I can be quite the hippie sometimes. Um, <laughs> spiritual but, but spiritual repair is what you said? Reparenting. Oh, reparenting. Sort of right. Doing okay. the work that your parents didn't yes, do yes, for, yes. for yes. your spirit and yes, for your well. character. But there's an aspect of it that I like. And then it led me to think about what I do as a kind of two-way generational reparenting. Sort of, on the one hand, caring for these bygone thinkers, while at the same time imbuing the present generation with their hand-me-down wisdom and, and their most enduring ideas. Hmm. And it's interesting because I was recently um, talking to my friend Andrew, um, Andrew Sullivan. He's a beautiful soul and a journalist of more integrity right. than probably anybody else I know. And he was lamenting that, you know, here we are with our fetishism of disruption, especially when it comes to media and journalism. Right. And then he said, you know, culture needs stewardship, not disruption. And I was oh, like, absolutely. yes. But I actually think, yes, we have forsaken stewardship to a large degree, but we need both always to move forward. Right. I, I love that language of stewardship. And I, there's also something about your work and the, I think the, the magnetism of your work, the appeal of it for people, that it's, it's aspirational, right? I mean, and which is another contrast to disruptive. Um, we have all these assumptions we kind of walk around with and lay them, especially over, you know, the new generations, that there's no place for depth, that we can only take things in bite-sized pieces, that everything has to be entertaining. Mm. And yet you present this discovery to people that we wanted to know more about big ideas, that we want our brains to be stretched, as a culture, you're right. We we seem somehow bored with thinking. We want to instantly know. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, right. you know, there's this epidemic of listicles. Why think about what constitutes a great work of art when you can skim the you know, the, the 20 most expensive paintings in history? Right. And I'm very guided by this desire to counter that in myself because I am, like everybody else, a product of my time and my culture. And I remember there's a really beautiful commencement address that um, Adrienne Rich gave in 1977 in which she said that an education is not something that you get, but something that you, you claim. And I think that's very much true of knowledge itself. The, the reason we're so increasingly intolerant of of long articles and why we skim them, why we skip forward even in a short video, you know, that reduces a 300-page book into a three-minute animation, even in that we skip forward, is that we've been infected with this kind of pathological impatience that makes us want to have the knowledge, but not to do the work of claiming it. I mean, you know, the true material of knowledge is meaning, and the meaningful is the um, opposite of the trivial. And the only thing that we 
sort of glean by skimming and skipping forward is really trivia. Mm -hmm. The only Mm -hmm. way to glean knowledge is contemplation. And and, and the road to that is time. There's nothing else. It's just time. There is no (laughs) shortcut for the conquest of meaning. And ultimately, you know, it is meaning that we seek to give to our lives. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in conversation with the mind behind brain pickings, Maria Popova. I wonder if you would just, you know, give an example of, you know, maybe something you've been reading or writing today or yesterday where some new connection has been there for you. Just an example of that that's fresh. Hmm. So I use Thoreau's diaries as a kind of a, a spiritual text that I <laughs> reread over and over when I need to kind of center, recenter. Thoreau's and diaries? This, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, his journals, I yeah. guess. Because actually, uh, in the history of the written word, for some reason, Men's diaries are called journals, and women's diaries are called diaries. <laughs> um, in any case, I was reading, there's this beautiful passage where he talks about hard work. And he says, basically, that the person who works hard doesn't exert himself all day, but has this leisure around accomplishing the task. And he says, you know, that the hen lays just one egg. And the rest of the time, she goes around and she feeds on things that feed the next egg. And this is in 1861, you know, that today we wear this badge of honor of, you know, productivity as as this hallmark of purpose. But it's in many ways the opposite, because Thoreau's point was basically that the more we busy ourselves with just the drudgery of work, the more actual work we accomplish. Right. You know, I do feel that there's a real quality in you as a human being, which comes through in your work of, um, and this is how it came to me when I was trying to put it towards, you know, intellectual confidence and generosity. Um, oh, that's such a lovely thing to say. <laughs> well, and it's, you know. I would like for it to be true one day. It's a good thing to <laughs> aspire to. It's beautiful. So if I use that phrase to describe you, and if I ask, you know, do you, do you think there's a philosophy in you about that, mm. that, you know, of course, you will refine throughout your life? Well, I think identity for all of us is this perpetual process, and it's somewhat like constantly clearing out and rearranging an attic. And... It's as much about throwing out all the furniture and trinkets that no longer serve us as, as bringing in new ones, you know. And, and in that sense, it's just as important to continue defining who we are as to continue eliminating who we are not. And for me, it kind of feeds on itself, you know. And brain pickings is both the record of how that f- inner philosophy has evolved, but it's also been the fuel for it. So it's a bit of a chicken or egg question. Um, Whatever that philosophy is, it's not, I don't think you can be deliberate about uh, shaping your course forward because you then end up somewhere completely stale and expected. 
Um, so I don't know. I think it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. You, you can't be directive, but you can mm. be discerning in terms of, as you say, what the fuel is that you're providing. And Well, there are certain core beliefs, I guess, that, I, well, okay, well, let's go with that. I yeah. mean, you know, I think a lot about this relationship between cynicism and hope mm-hmm. and critical thinking without hope is cynicism, but hope without critical thinking is naivete. And I try to live in this place between the two to to try to build a life there, you know, because finding fault and feeling hopeless about improving our situation uh, produces resignation, of which cynicism is a symptom and against which it is this sort of futile self-protection mechanism. But on the other hand, believing blindly that everything will work out just fine also produces a kind of resignation because mm. we have no motive to apply ourselves toward making things better. And I think in order to survive both as individuals and a, as a civilization, but especially in order to thrive, um, we need to bridge critical thinking with hope. So, you know, some of the things that you discover, and I'll d- d- just actually give perspective also that feeds that tension between cynicism and hope. You know, there's just, and this is something you did in for Slate in Future Tense. You know, these are, for example, two different pieces that you posted there. Oh, One, they, yeah, they reposted things they, that I written. They reposted, um, okay, for, for, yeah. So like, pickings, you know, yeah. one of them is uh, a visual time, uh, the headline is a visual timeline of the future says the world will still exist in the year 802,701. And then... Another one nearby, an amazingly timely essay on info overload, open access science, and human filters from 1945. <laughs> so I should say, first of all, that um, I love what Slate is doing. I think they're doing some of the most uh, ambitious journalism online. But I had no say in titling those essays. Oh, you didn't? Okay. They, reti- they republished the okay. substance of what I wrote on Brain Pickings, but they retitled oh, that's it. That's good to know. Uh, all right. But the one, the the second one you referred to is um, Vannevar Bush, um, who wrote this beautiful essay in 1945 called As We May Think. And in it, he basically envisions the internet. He envisions this personal mm, computer called the Memex from Memory and Index. And it's extraordinarily prophetic in, in, in what not just the technology, but the relationships that we'll have with knowledge, with information, with each other. And he talks about this. He said there will be a new new profession of trailblazers who will make a career out of finding useful trails through what he through the common record and i love this notion of the common record yeah and in a way so much of what i do is an attempt to make sense of humanity's common record after a short break more with maria popova You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every conversation I have on the On Being podcast feed. Now with bite-sized extras wherever podcasts are found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about the meaning of life with Brain Pickings creator Maria Popova. From its beginnings as an internal office experiment while she was still a college student, Brain Pickings has expanded to a website, a weekly digest, and an esteemed Twitter feed, disseminating wisdom of the old-fashioned sort in new-fashioned digital ways. Maria Popova has also written for Wired UK, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab. You know, you've, you've become a role model for... A lot of young people looking to navigate life and life with technology, both entrepreneurially and meaningfully. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that you're very known for, whenever people write about you, they go into great detail about your prodigious workload. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think it was all, all of that was seeded by a somewhat inaccurate... Uh, one, one thing that someone wrote. One, one, one rather inaccurate... Uh, yeah. <laughs> 450 hours of work, just one of them. They all have their variations on this. 450 hours of work each month, hundreds of pieces of read a day, 12 to 15 books a week, uh, three to eight hours writing a day, publishes three hours, tweets four times per hour between 8 a.m. and 11 p.m. I mean, is that all true? Um, some of it has been true at different times. Yeah. The tweeting has sort of... Uh, slowed down the hours. I think it's actually a gross underestimate. Okay. <laughs> I read and write from the minute I wake up to the moment I go to sleep at night and everything in between, even those, you know, I, I get around on bikes, so I commute and uh, I listen to On Being, I listen to Radio Lab, you know, whatever I listen to, that feeds in, you know, that's part of the the reading. And so I would say the hours are probably a lot more. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But but the thing but I, I want to say something important mm-hmm. though about that that mm-hmm. even if it's factually true I think the framing is a little bit misleading because it's framed as a sort of as a productivity thing I mean yep. look at how much yep. like some random person in the world gets done you know yeah. and for me it, it feels very purposeful and I think what's funny is that I used to marvel for a long time why. My best ideas, and I don't mean by ideas, I, I, I don't mean the ideas that sort of about what to write or, you know, all of that, but just sort of insights on the truths of, of my experience, of the human experience, whatever. Those ideas, the best of them came to me at the gym or on my bike or in the shower. And I used to have these elaborate theories that maybe, you know, there was something about the movement of the body and the water that magically sparked uh, <laughs> deeper consciousness. But but I've really come to realize the kind of obvious thing, which is that these are simply the most unburdened spaces in my life, the mm-hmm. moments in which mm-hmm. I have the greatest uninterrupted intimacy with my own mind, with my own experience. And there's nothing magical, you know, at least not in the mystical sense about that. It's just a kind of ordinary magic that's available to each of us just by default, if only we made that deliberate choice to make room for it and to invite it in. Mm. Um, I'd like to talk about your perspective on journalism and news, which is, you know, another mm. way, a very important way and consuming way we deal with information. Um, You often talk about one of the things you're looking for in content for brain pickings is something that contains both timeliness and timelessness. 
Mm. I think journalism has all these concentric circles within it. Yeah. We've come to conflate journalism with news. And so much of that culture deals with what is urgent right now and not what is important in the grand scheme of things, you know. And there's this sort of time bias or, or presentism bias that happens. Mm, which, presentism, I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is right, you know, the, 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 in part because of the way that the Internet is structured. So when you think about anything from a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed to a, a news website, the, the most recent floats to the top always, and it's always in reverse chronology. And I think that's conditioning us to believe rather falsely that the most recent is the most important yeah. and that the older matters less or or just exists less to a point where we really have come to believe that things that are not on Google or on the news either never happened, (laughs) never existed, or don't matter. But I would say probably 99% of the record of human thought is off the internet and from the history of humanity, you know? And so I I think the internet is, its beauty is that it's a self-perfecting organism, right? Mm. But as long as it's an ad-supported medium, the motive will be to perfect commercial interest, to perfect the art of the listicle, the endless slideshow, the infinitely paginated article, and not to perfect the human spirit of the reader or the writer. And I think that journalism is moving further and further away from, you know, you take something like E.B. White's ideal which, you know, he said that the role of the writer is to lift people up, not to lower them down. Mm, mm-hmm. And so much of what passes for journalism today lowers. Yeah, but, you know, I think that there's been this unfortunate convergence of the Internet and the kind of 24-7 cycle. It used to be possible to, you know, do some huge piece of expose of something shocking and terrible, and that would mobilize people. But when people are bombarded by the shocking um, mm. and they start to internalize it as the norm, it actually shuts them down. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you you wrote something in the New York Times that I, I just thought this was a very great sentence. A powerful story transcends the shock value to help the reader reconcile the cognitive dissonance of controversy and emerge closer to the truth if only just a little bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, there is so much goodness in the world. And of course, we just kind of have to show up for it and refuse to leave. Yes, people sometimes do horrible things. And we can speculate about why they do them until we run out of words and run out of sanity. But evil only prevails when we mistake it for the norm. And yet the currency of news journalism is making it the norm. Yeah, unwittingly. And you know, you in the literary jukebox you quoted <laughs> Anne Lamott. Uh talking she's actually talking about something um, Emily Dickinson said that mm-hmm. hope inspires the good to reveal itself. Mm. Um, and I you know to me that speaks to the cultivation of hope as a way to move through the world which you talked about a little while ago, meeting the information that comes our way with something 
robust and complicated called hope. What did you say? Hope with its critical faculties intact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing is, I don't think hope is baked in faculty that you're born either with or without. It's a conditioned response. So we can respond to horrible events that do happen in the world and we do need to actually attend to and try to understand and help. We can respond to those with hope and we can respond to them with resignation and which brings us back to this notion of the sort of reparenting because I think when we have a foundation of wisdom and of, of assuredness, I guess, that comes from people who have lived long ago and have gone through horrible things and through beautiful things, that then we somehow are better able to rest in that and know that despite what happens, yes, we should show up and think critically about it, but despite it all, at the base level, there is this hope that is the human experience. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with the mind and life behind brain pickings, Maria Popova. You know, when you said a minute ago that the that the internet is a self-perfecting organism and that you use some language about there are values and, and details built into the way we design that 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 work against uh, the perfection of the human spirit as the, as the mm. as a primary drive. But do you have hope and confidence um, in the internet, in our technology as a place where I mean, perfection is a big word, but where 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 the human spirit um, can be cultivated and deepened—that's not language people often use when they're speaking of our lives with technology. Well, the thing to keep in mind is that this is such a young medium. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We have not even had a full generation live and die with it, and uh, I think like any territory to which we bring the pioneer spirit is bound to have both the good and the evil. And we're not going to know how it turns out until much, much, much later. But in the meantime, the decisions we make, the microscopic decisions that we make daily, shape it. And I'm not so foolish as to make predictions, but I can tell you my hope, which is that I do think that people will come to rebel against the things that just don't work for us spiritually, intellectually, creatively. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this to some degree. I think the younger generations, and I don't mean this by age, but I mean people who are sort of more recently coming onto the the scene of the Internet, are more willing to, for example, pay for ad-free versions of publications or to um, limit what they engage with 
and recognize that actually it takes time and thought and effort and resources to produce a publication that is nourishing as opposed to uh, catalystical mm-hmm. and, and to make decisions according to how something makes you feel in the end and what kind of contribution it's making to, you know, to use Vannevar Bush's word again, the common record. Mm-hmm. I was listening to an interview with um, Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and he said that um, people contribute to Wikipedia for free because they want to do something useful with their time. And yes, I agree. I think people hunger to do something useful with their time in our age of kind of uselessness, you know, time uselessly spent, but also something ennobling with their time. This can't quite be quantified. You know, there's no utilitarian value to it the way that there is with usefulness. But I I deeply believe that people want to be good, that more than that, we want to be better, to grow, to to ennoble our souls. And I, I have hope for this medium with that lens. Mm. You know, I was so intrigued. You sent out um, at the end of 2014... The best brain pickings articles of the year, best meaning those most read and shared by others, as well as those you took the most pleasure in writing. And it's kind of a long list, but I want to read it. We might not have time for it on the whole show, but I think it's really a fascinating list. An Antidote to the Age of Anxiety, Alan Watts on Happiness and How to Live with Presence, How to Criticize with Kindness, this philosopher Daniel Dennett. I don't read all of them. I'll skip. How to Be Alone, an Antidote to One of the Central Anxieties and Greatest Paradox of Our Time. You can hear I printed all this out, so I've got all the pictures. I'm like, <laughs> um, uh, the Benjamin Franklin Effect, The Surprising Psychology of How to Handle Haters, The Shortness of Life, Seneca on Busyness, and The Art of Living Wide Rather Than Living Long. Anyway, there's definitely... Um, there's there's such a deep theme, a thread that runs through all of that. And, you know, if somebody had heard about brain pickings but not read it, I mean, you do. You, 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 there's a lot of big ideas, but, but this, this recurring thread is how we bring big ideas and aspirational ideas and also real kind of spiritual and social technologies to become whole, integrated, evolving people. I just I want to ask you if that list from 2014 is different from the list, you know, nine years ago. I mean, have those mm-hmm. themes deepened? Have you what have you seen? Um, oh, absolutely, the they're they're radically different. You know, I I am radically different. Yeah, I was a spiritual embryo nine years ago. <laughs> right. Well, you were 21. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I would also say. Because brain pickings is just such a subjective, private, sort of one-woman labor of love, it's so aligned with the events of my own life and the things that I struggle with. Yeah, Yeah. the evolution, but also the struggle and the aspiration and the questions that I'm constantly trying to answer for myself that— That list is really the list of my year. What were the things that I was preoccupied with, you know, this past year? And it's been, I I can't recall off the top of my head what the previous year's most sort of my favorite pieces were, but I would imagine they were pretty different. There, There is a very spiritual aspect to that, and the word spiritual being expansively, you know, understood 
and I sense that that's grown in you as well. Mm. I don't know. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this goes back to the whole thing about growing up in Bulgaria and the atheism and the extreme resistance, not just to religion, but to spirituality, to not seeing the nuance and what that can mean. And um, I think, you know, we never see the world exactly as it is. We, We see it as we hope it will be or we fear it might be. And we spend our lives going through a sort of modified stages of grief about that realization. And we deny it, and then we argue with it, and we despair over it. But eventually, and and this is my belief, we come to see it not as despairing, but as vitalizing. We, We never see the world exactly as it is because we are how the world is. You know, was yeah. was it? I think it was William James who said, "My experience is what I agree to attend to, and only those things which I notice shape my mind." And so, in choosing how we are in the world, we shape our experience of that world, our contribution to it. We shape our world, our inner world, our outer world, which is really the only one we'll ever know. And to me, that's the substance of the spiritual journey, and 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 that's not an exasperating idea, but an infinitely emboldening one. And it's taken me many years to, to, to come to that without resistance. You know, while I was um, getting ready to interview you, Seth Godin's blog came across my desk, this, you know, my, into my inbox. And um, I just, I want to read it because it just seems so resonant with... I love his, uh, his yeah, mind, I do so too. please do. <laughs> Um, giving the people what they want isn't nearly as powerful as teaching people what they need. There's always a shortcut available, a way to be a little more ironic, cheaper, more instantly understandable. There's the chance to play into our desire to be entertained and distracted regardless of the cost. Most of all, there's the temptation to encourage people to be selfish, afraid, and angry. Or you can dig in, take your time, and invest in a process that helps people see what they truly need. When we change our culture in this direction, we're doing work that's worth sharing. But it's slow going. If it were easy, it would have happened already. It's easy Mm. to start a riot. Difficult to create a story that keeps people from rioting. Don't say, I wish people wanted this. Sure, it's great if the market already wants what you make. Instead, imagine what would happen if you could teach them why they should. Mm. Mm. I love that. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's always been the case in yeah and we we orient ourselves in in the darkness of the unknown by grasping kind of blindly for familiar points of reference and we seek to construct out of them a kind of compass out of similarities and contrasts relative to our familiar world and our existing knowledge and i think it's especially true about such nebulous subjects as art or philosophy or or really how to think, where there is no true north. So we seek tangibles, like the market, to orient ourselves in this maze of merit and meaning. And it takes something. But I I really believe most people, all people, have that capacity in them to do what he says, basically, to, you know, not orient ourselves to what's been done, what's been thought, to, to the market, to the familiar. And, and try ever so gently to expand our private locus of the possible. Yeah. And, you know, Maria, you're, 
you are an old soul and you are East Central European by birth. Um, and I don't and I don't like asking people to speak for their generation, but I, I do wonder if you feel like your generation and the new generations may be more open and to and powerful with that possibility. Or equipped in some way to be present to that possibility. Again, I can only express my hope and yeah. not my prediction, yeah. but especially because I, I feel like I'm profoundly underqualified to speak to that, in part because most of my friends are dead people. <laughs> uh, people, you know, the authors and artists and so forth yeah. and, uh, are long gone, but my real-life friends, uh, <laughs> the majority of them are significantly older than I am. My partner is significantly older than I am. My youngest friend is six years older than I am. <laughs> okay. uh, so I, I, don't, I don't feel, I feel so, I feel like I'm such right. a profound failure of my of representing my generation. <laughs> All right. You are who you are. Um, how, what, if I ask you how you measure success, like in any given day, what comes to mind? Hmm. Well, once again, it's I am going to side with Thoreau. And uh, he said something like, if the day and night are such that you greet them with joy and life emits a fragrance like flowers, uh, it's more elastic and more starry and more immortal, that is your success. And for me, that's pretty much it. Waking up and being excited and and curiously restless to face the day ahead and and being very present with that day and then going to bed feeling like it actually happened, that, that the day was lived. <laughs> I mean, that there's nothing more than that, really. And in terms of um, the effect that you can gauge externally, I do hear you that you don't measure success on numbers, but what feels like success to you uh, when it comes to you from outside? Mm. Well, you know, we are such, and I am not, I'm far from being on this sort of high moral horse of, oh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm immune to these metrics that we all yeah. uh, respond to. I think we're such Pavlovian creatures and we yeah. thrive on constant positive reinforcement. And we live in an era where the tangibles of that have become very readily available and you can see things like, you know, Facebook likes and retweets. And right, it is right. so tempting and so easy because they're concrete. They're, they're concrete substitutes for things that are inherently nebulous. It's so easy to sort of hang your sanity and your sense of worth on them. And I have certainly suffered from that earlier on when these metrics first became available. And they're right there. I mean, they are right there. And I think it takes a real discipline just to not hang the stability of your soul on them, you know? Mm. And so one thing that I've done for myself, which is probably the most sanity-inducing thing that I've done in the last few years, is to never look at statistics and, and such sort of externalities. But I do read all the the emails that and, and letters I also get letters from readers yeah. and to me that really is the metric of what we mean to one another and how we connect and that aspect of communion I mean I heard from a woman yesterday who said that uh, she's been living with stage four cancer for 26 years oh, and she she goes and tells me this remarkably moving, 
it's not a story. It's her life, you know, and it makes you go, wow, these are the things that matter. And, and, and she was writing very, very generously to say that she was finding nourishment in all these thinkers and these ideas. And that to me is success, the feeling that somebody more enlightened and, and living a harder life and in some ways a more beautiful life than I am resonates, you know, that's, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. You wrote somewhere, um, we are a collage of our interests, our influences, our inspirations, all the fragmentary impressions we've collected by being alive and awake to the world. Who we are is simply a finely curated catalog of those, which, which brings the word curation, which I understand you're not as fond mm. of anymore, into, this, into the answer of what it means to be human, that we curate our lives how do you think your sense of what it means to be human, that grand question, has evolved? How would you start to talk about that? Hmm. I think much of it has shifted from an understanding that's based on concreteness to an understanding that's based on relational things. Um, that This notion of not just who we are, but who we are in relation to our past selves, the people around us, the culture that we came from, the culture that we live in, all the different lives we've had. And for me, certainly, I feel like I've had all these different lives. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I grew up in a country that is pretty much the exact opposite of my life right now, I, I grew up having <laughs> nothing. And, and, you know, and then, then I sort of clawed my way up and out and uh and now I I live in New York City and I am able to afford my own life and and live my own life without worrying about things that I worried about for for many 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 years and it's so strange how we're able to carry forward this mystery of personal identity even when our present selves are so different from our future selves and I and and from our past selves mm-hmm. most of all and I think a lot about this question of what is a person I mean how am I the same person as my childhood self I'm yeah. sure we share the same body but even that body is so different it's it's unrecognizably different and our, our lives are so different our, our ideas and ideals are so different and to me, this question of what it means to be human is always a question of elasticity of being. It's never mm. a, an arrival point, you know? Yeah. Mm. But I, I want to also go back to this. The, you mentioned the, the fragments, this notion of the fragments. And yes, I, I do agree that we're kind of a mashup of, of what we let into our lives but at the same time, we we live in a culture of dividedness. And I, I don't mean just people being divided amongst themselves, but people di- being divided within themselves. Mm. And our language reflects that. And language matters enormously in not just conveying, but also shaping our beliefs. And even the, the language of secular spirituality reflects that. I mean, consider the the things that we encourage when we talk about a full life wholeheartedness and mindfulness. And of course, we're so much more expansive than our hearts and our minds and our (laughs) 
perfect abs or whatever fragment we <laughs> fixate on, you know. And but yet we we compartmentalize our experience in that way. We divide it into these fragments to be sort of divided and conquered. And I was reading this morning, actually, for a piece that I'm writing for tomorrow, um, Virginia Woolf's diary, which is not a journal, but a diary. <laughs> a diary, yeah. um, <laughs> And she says, one can't write directly about the soul looked at, it vanishes. And she talks about the slipperiness of the soul and the mm. delicacy and complexity of the soul. But I think the fullest people, the, the people most whole and most alive, are always those unafraid and unashamed of the soul. And the soul is never an assemblage of fragments, and it always is. Maria Popova is the creator and presence behind BrainPickings.org, which is included in the Library of Congress's permanent digital archive of culturally valuable materials. She also hosts The Universe in Verse, an annual celebration of science through poetry. Her new book, just out this week, is titled Figuring. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Tech Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.